Um, all right. If you are a guest or visiting, welcome. My name is James, one of the pastors here. Uh, before we open and teach through the Bible uh, to 2 Corinthians, where we find ourselves in, we want to give you a uh, global missions update. So really uh, briefly, before the pandemic, we had began relationships with um, a church or an organization in Uganda through Neil and Wendy who go to our church. They're already supporting an, um, just some library help in the school there. And actually Danielle Langley went over there and visited the area. And John Lalonde and I were planning to go to Uganda in October of last year, but then the pandemic hit. Anyhow, uh, we were going to be sharing that with us, but we felt there was a pause in that, but, but our relationship with the pastor there and a church called Oasis Bible Church continued, and one of the asks they had, and we asked them, how can we bless you, uh, was to provide electricity for their church, because they, they didn't have electricity in their local church, and so we were able through us as a church, through the global fund, uh, provide all the funds to give this church electricity. So we want to show you a thank you video they sent us, and so we'll show you that now. So we would like to extend our thanks to our sister, Wendy, who identified us. I don't know how she was led, and she came. I talked to her, and uh, after talking to her, these are the fruits. Thank you so much. Pastor James, thank you for passing that link, sending her to Africa. And uh, surely they are doing the job of the kingdom. This power is going to help us to save us so, so much. Because every Sunday and in the week we have meetings, but we've not been using the generator during the week because we have to buy, to buy fuel, we have to incur those expenses. So if people are doing fire practice and any other practices, they don't use the power because we don't have it. But now that we are getting it, there's going to be a great change. Even in the Sunday themselves, you are saving us from going every Sunday. Buy, buy fuel, do this, the generator is broken down, do all those things, because it has been also oil. But now we thank God, yeah, we have upgraded power. Thanks so much for the money, thanks so much for the love, thanks so much for whatever you have done. I would like to say like Paul said, that and may my God will supply all your needs according to his riches. All right. Oh, man, that's exciting. So thank you, Shore. Uh, let me give you another, uh, another announcement. Uh, right now, we are four weeks from Easter Sunday, so we'll give you more information about what we're doing on the back end on that. Uh, but this is our second last message in 2 Corinthians. So we preached the entire book today and next week, and then we're going to start a three-week Easter series called Rescue, uh, and then after that, we're going to go into a five-week marriage series, And uh, but that's not the announcement. So here's the announcement. Uh, beginning May 11th to September 13, the elders have graciously uh, blessed me with a sabbatical, and so I've been a part of, the, of Westside and now the Shore for 13 years, and about two years ago, felt like the Lord say, 
I want you to take a sabbatical. And I shared that with the elders and they affirmed it fully. That was in 2019. And then we got word about the building and then the pandemic hit. And so a lot of that was delayed. But this year it came up again. And again, the elders said, yes, we think this is good and healthy and right for you. And so uh, that's the plan. Let me just share with you, um, you know, what is a sabbatical? What's this gonna look like really quick? Uh, sabbatical really is, is about rest and renewal. You know, it comes from the principle when, of creation when Jesus rested on the seventh day and he enjoyed and was renewed and, and then he gave us the principle of the seventh day rest. Likewise, every seventh year, the nation of Israel uh, had a Sabbath year. This was a time for rest, a time where God provided opportunity for them to be renewed and recreate and, and recenter their lives. And so connected to this, the, the sabbatical is kind of broken up into these parts. So over, over these weeks, there's a one-month vacation in there as well, but there'll be rest and renewal. The second part will be reflection and intimacy. Uh, oftentimes, one author says this, most pastors don't have an off switch. That's true. They go to sleep with the knowledge they could be awakened by a phone call at any time of the day. Vacations are rarely uninterrupted. It can be an exhausting vocation, and a sabbatical can be a welcome time to slow down. Uh, sabbaticals, they help pastors, staff, ministers, uh, like minister from a place of intimacy, a place of just being with God, stopping and refocusing and discerning and reflecting and growing that intimacy. Uh, it prevents pastors in the long game from burnout. Another part of a sabbatical is uh, preparing readiness uh, and, and re retraining. You know, oftentimes pastors are just in their sermon, just in the counseling, and they don't have time to maybe develop or be equipped in a specific area. And so in a sabbatical, there's times where there'll be courses taken, books read, all of that. The, the elders have looked at our plan and love it and are working on it. And then lastly, this is one of my favorites one, favorite ones, uh, is a sabbatical, it produces reliance as a church. Uh, I just want to read some of this, but a sabbatical forces the pastor and the church to trust God. Taking time off forces us to recognize that God is in control. A weekly Sabbath is designed to keep us from putting too much trust in our own work. It allows us to see that God is able to keep things going without us. This frees us from the striving and the worry that comes from thinking that everything depends on our work. A sabbatical is similar. Both the church and both pastor, staff, member, they learn that they are not the center of the church's work that God is. So I'm really excited about that. I've been releasing a lot of ministry. I've uh, been really thankful for the team Jesus has put around, the elders Jesus has put around, and the, I'm just thankful for the church, the, the community group leaders, Niles, all of it. It just feels like such a healthy place. Uh, you know, Jordan, just to give you some, you know, what's going to be, who's going to be covering what. Jordan will be functionally the lead pastor under the elders. Um, we'll have guest preachers. We've really shored this up. Uh, people like Norm Funk, Mark Birch, friends of the ministry that planted us, like Matt Glezos, uh, Pastor Fred Eaton from Christ City, Lee Francois, Brett Landry, and, and some of our own, which we'll tell you more about that later. But really excited, really thankful. Wanted to let you know about those dates as well. And uh, let me pray. And then we'll get into our message. Yeah, Jesus, I just, I thank you that, uh, Lord, just you are always present, unhurried, relaxed, connected to the Father. 
And yet you had such a clear sense of what you came to do. And I thank you so much that we get to open your word and be in a book like 2 Corinthians where we can see the continuing presence of Jesus in the Apostle Paul, what it was like to be led by a man so connected to you, called by you. And that's our heart. We, as we've been in this relational letter, our heart is to learn and to be present in the kingdom of God where you've placed us in our time. This isn't a history class. We don't wanna hear a sermon about what just happened back then. We want to hear from what happened back then because your, your word is living. Because you have in front of us a kingdom that you are present in and coming in and on the North Shore. So I pray that your presence would come with your words. Your conviction, Holy Spirit, would come with these words and that you would anoint me and fill me with the spiritual gift of teaching. And I pray, God, that as we open our Bibles, we would anticipate encounters with Jesus. We would come with open hands and say, Jesus, like anything you wanna talk about in my soul, you have permission. And so teach us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so as you know, we are, um, you, you know, we're watching Paul deal with some of the conflicts in a church back in the first century where this whole congregation was being uh, kind of wooed by these super apostles who were claiming, you know, that, that the way to get value was to get paid and that, you know, they were such better at preaching and rhetoric and they had all these stories and, and Paul was the one who planted the church and, and he was just mind blown that they were being led astray by this kind of non-gospel thinking and there were issues in the Corinthian church that he kept addressing because he loved them like a good father and, and they was constantly misunderstood and yet he just held strong to love them with Christ's love and, and so what, what we're gonna do this morning is we're just gonna keep in the theme of what do we learn, like lessons from how Paul uh, persevered as a pastor with Jesus loving hard people. So we're gonna look at three lessons and, and here's, here's what I want us to see. When leading with Jesus, this is what Paul's gonna show us. When leading with Jesus, I want to number one, be an unburdening presence and point to Jesus. This is what was fueling his motivation. When leading with Jesus, number two, I wanna connect myself to people so all of us are leaders, all of us, whether it's in the home or family, we all have some influence. So when leading with Jesus in my life, as I'm learning from Paul in this book, in this letter, I wanna connect myself to people like family, even when, even when others aren't ready, that's hard, or untrusting, or feel taken advantage of. And then number three, when leading with Jesus, I want to be ready to be humbled. I wanna be ready to be humbled. Well, we'll you'll know what that means as we, as we go. So let's just start. When leading with Jesus, I wanna be an unburdening presence and I wanna to point to Jesus. So if you have your Bible, take your beautiful face. We're starting in verse 11, finishing, finishing chapter 12. Verse 11, I've been a fool, he says. You forced me to it. So he's just alluding back to talking and boasting about being in the third heaven. He didn't wanna boast about it, but he had to 
He had to show that if you were with us last week to get on their plane to be able to deconstruct it and, and bring in the gospel. He's like, man, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. And then he says this, for I ought to have been commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you we'll just pause there when leading with Jesus I want to be an unburdening presence and I want to point to Jesus this church in a sense owes their spiritual lives to Paul's ministry and sadly you know he's he's receiving no support no commendation he's like I showed up with Signs of a true apostle with power, with suffering. You knew that I saw the, I was in the presence of Jesus, commissioned by him. Not only that, but accompanying me was signs and wonders and miracles. I mean, I, he, his whole point is I didn't put me as someone you had to like financially pay or please. That wasn't what it was about. I came with the authority of your apostle. It was all about showing the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the spirit, the true gospel, that the Messiah has come to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, to bring you into a relationship and adoption with God. It's like, don't forget. You know, signs in scripture, they have one purpose. Signs like any sign is a purpose. It's not a destination. But they always pointed to the person of Jesus to his love, to his relational life, wonders and mighty works. They were meant to arouse amazement, but not to be ends in themselves. Like his whole point in saying that, he's like, don't forget that. Like everything I came with you was meant to point to Jesus. Because even, I am nothing. But he's like, don't forget what you experienced when I was with you, but I'm nothing. You know, let me do a quick sidebar here. It's really important, I think, to say this, but miraculous deeds were a sign or, you know, or, or a characteristic feature of a true apostle. They, they were not the sign of an apostle. I mean, definitely we need to, you know, be clear. The apostles Jesus appointed did have a, a measure, I mean, of, of power that others don't. Like, I mean, handkerchiefs that just heal or shadows. But in scripture, signs and wonders, they're not limited to the apostles. Uh, many Christians, even, even the spiritual gift of miracles is given to the church. Um, you know, others in the church, for example, here's a list of, of those who, perform, who performed signs and miracles. We're not the apostles. But here's the point. I appreciate Wayne Grudem. He, he comments on this passage. He says this, the contrast in this passage is not between apostles who could work miracles and ordinary Christians who could not, but between genuine Christian apostles through whom the Holy Spirit worked and non-Christian pretenders to the apostolic office through whom the Holy Spirit did not work at all. So here's just an important lesson for us I, to, to package this point a little bit. Uh, don't chase signs and wonders if 
your heart is to feel important or just feel experience or power as an end. Chase loving the people Jesus is ministering to and what he has for them. Chase the people, chase loving them with Jesus and what he has for them and then all the gifts and the signs and wonders as he has designed them to come will come because the signs are representation. The king is here. The king is present. He says in verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you. Back to our point, being an unburdening presence. I was crafty, you say, and, and got the better of you by deceit. Did, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Again, he's like, the, he's like none of the pastors, none of me asked for money. We didn't even retake your money. We didn't, we didn't want that. You saying that we're deceiving you, that's a colored lens that they put on you. It's funny, in verse 13, verse 13 is actually really hard to read, so if you look at it, go ahead and take a moment and look at it yourself. Um, all the commentators agree this is sarcasm. I personally think, and I'm reading this into the text maybe, I personally think Paul was funny. Like, I think they knew him. I think when he was sarcastic here, he's triggering a relational connection that he had with them. And they'd read it and go, oh man, like, so, so basically in verse 13, he's like, okay, let me get this straight, you guys. It's obvious that me not taking your money or even, you know, my commitment, you know, and like hard work is interpreted by these apostles as proof that I don't think you're valuable. Okay, forgive me for that. That's what he's saying. Forgive me for that. It's, I think it's funny. Anyways, you can tell in his heart, in his relational connection with this church, he's, he's always meant to be an unburdening presence. If, if you're with a leader and you're with a pastor and all you feel is this burden, you feel like, oh, you know, he deserves and he's asking for this and no, 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 no. As leaders, we come with the peace of Jesus. We're not coming for money. We're not coming to gain. We're coming to point to Jesus. That's what it's about. It's all about Jesus. So, so this takes us to our second point, number two, in pointing to Jesus. I mean, in, you know, in, in leading with Jesus, we want to connect ourselves to people like a father. Look at verse 14. This is how he says this. Here, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I don't want your money. I want you. Why? Because for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. The role of the father is I'm not taking my money from kids. I, my heart is I save up and I spend my life, my finances, every parent's like, yep, um, all of that for your flourishing. So watch what he says in verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Every pastor, every staff member, every ministry leader should have a t-shirt with that sentence on it. I will most gladly spend 
and be spent for your souls. Paul, Paul, man, Paul had this, I'm your pastor whether you like it or not, I love you because I love you. He had this, I love you because I love you heart of Jesus. It didn't, it didn't wipe him out. He wasn't threatened by them because he was moving from a whole different identity, deeply loved by the Father. I mean, he just knew I was, I'm commissioned to pay attention to this soil. I am specifically designed to be the apostle and the daddy of this church. You never abandon your kids, whether they've abandoned you. He's not, he, so he's saying no matter how much you don't love me or how much you're misapplying stuff or how much you're allowing yourselves to be led astray, he's like this, I'm, look, I'm happy to be with you. Even when you don't like me, uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he makes this comment, Paul willingly spent everything for the Corinthians. All his material resources and his energies, the price he paid was impoverishment, poor health, premature old age, and as we know, a martyr's death. Um, he, he shares in his commentary, it was this truth that actually led C.T. Studd upon graduating at Cambridge to spend his life in the Congo with this motto, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for them. To spend for them. Do you see the order? He's changed by Christ's active love to bring C.T. Studd into relationship, which rewires in him a mindset of commitment like a father to the people in Congo. Even when others aren't ready, untrusting, they feel like maybe you're gonna take advantage of me. The heart of every missionary and pastor who's been filled with Jesus is I'm glad to be with you. I'm giving you my time. I wanna give you my resources. My heart is for you. And it's not because of who I am, it's because of what Jesus has done. I wanna share with you one brief biography, Charles Simeon, just to give you some inspiration, famous 17th century pastor. Uh, I recommend, you know that book I've talked to you guys about, uh, 50 Servants of Sovereign Joy by John Piper, big thick book of biographies, Charles Simeon, uh, he had the hardest church. I got to tell you about this church. He had the hardest perseverance story. So while in university at, Cam at Cambridge, same as CT, uh, he dreamed of pastoring the church next to a Trinity church. And so he, he quote, he said this, that I might preach the gospel there and be a herald for him in the university. So the bishop at that time, after he graduates, he actually appoints him to this role, this congregation. But here's the thing, the congregation didn't want him. And so Charles Simeon, he knew God was calling him to it. He knew he wanted to love them, but they had some kind of power to hold the Sunday evening, which was a huge deal back in the 17th century. Uh, they held the preaching and pulpit from him for 12 years. They actually held it for five years and they gave it to uh, a guy named Dr. Hammond. He leaves and they gave it to just another guy, not their own pastor, okay, for 12 years. Then, listen to this, they lock the doors of their pew, so every pew had like a door to, you know, go sit into the pew. So they locked the pew doors on Sunday mornings, refusing to not only come themselves, but they wouldn't let anyone else sit in their personal pews. 
So Simeon, there's stories of him, he had to set up seats in the aisle and the nooks and all over in the corners of his own church at his own expense. And at times, the church warden would take those chairs out and just chuck them into the churchyard. Imagine preaching <laughs> to the people who are locking their pews, not even coming and throwing the stuff for the people who may want to come out. How long do you think that lasted? Yes. 10 years. So how do you do this? Well, after looking back over 50 years, he said this. I love the valley of humiliation. I there feel that I'm in proper place. Piper, um, he makes this comment and he quotes... Charles Simeon, this was, this was after 50 years of Charles Simeon looking back, and here's what he says. While we continue in this spirit of self-degradation, everything else will go on easily. We shall find ourselves advancing in our course. We shall feel the presence of God. We shall experience his love. We shall live in the enjoyment of his favor and in the hope of his glory. Where do you get that? In the spirit of self-degradation. He says, you often feel that your prayers scarcely reach the ceiling, but oh, get into this humble spirit by considering how good the Lord is and how evil you all are, and then pray, and then prayer will amount on wings of faith to heaven. The sigh, the groan of a broken heart will soon go through the ceiling up to heaven, I into very bosom, in the bosom of God. And I, I think this is what we see when Paul says, my God may humble me. Look at verse 10, so this leads us into the third leadership lesson. So when leading with Jesus, I wanna be ready to be humbled. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. I love you because I love you because Jesus loves you. Verse 20, for fear, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps when I come, there's still, you know, there'll be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. You can sense Paul's heart's uh, has a readiness to be humbled, that when he comes, there's still gonna be a slowness, an unchanging slowness, an unwilling to repent. He doesn't want that, and he doesn't wanna to have to come, and again, because remember what we said a few weeks ago, church discipline is a good grace. And here's what he's, he's so, so you know, our job as pastors and, and Bible believers and people who come to the word, we're not just going what happened then, and 
This was a then issue. We need to pull this into the shore and go, Father, why are you saying this? Why are we in this text right now? So as we do, uh, may the Holy Spirit just highlight some things for you. But here, here's what he's afraid to find. There, there will be quarreling. So you just look, look at us and see if, if you find this in you. Uh, this word just means arguing contentiously in and amongst ourselves, anger, hostility. This one's interesting. This word has its roots in pride. So hostility says that you, hostility is the attitude that you go, you know what, I'm good. I don't need your opinion. I'm right. I, I got the corner of truth on this. I've got the right perspective of reality. And it's just hostile. You, you just, you can't, there's no love first in hostility, slander. This is like, hey, let's huddle around in our own group and let's go for a coffee and then we can tell lies about each other. That'd be fun. Gossip, it's like, you know, did you hear about so-and-so and, and uh, you know, I don't know if I like this or did you see what they posted on here and, and uh, like what they do and how they spend their, da, 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 da. Conceit, disorder, conceit. This is a person, when you meet them, like, they seem to have no sense of weakness. And, and you think, at first, wow, that's God confidence. Now, that's hard to discern. But instead of any boasting in weakness and dependence that they carry, instead, you come away with this spirit of justification. Like, it's a smugness. Conceit is a smugness, I have nothing to change. There's no weakness that I'm clinging to Jesus in. And when you're with them, what's interesting is the fruit is you feel afraid. And you feel like you need to perform. But you don't know why, because you're like, they're so good at being a Christian. You don't feel embraced, you don't feel loved, you don't feel listened to. Conceit is a... a, a massive how do I say it? like landmine in the Christian community the church community the Pharisee community now let me just say this if someone just came to your mind just don't feel like oh good about that because you just did it um, just Jesus Jesus deeply loves them and just pray this love but I bless them just be like mm, Jesus you know, fast this week. Forgive them if it's been personal. Lastly, he doesn't want to find, and this is so hard. I think we need to pause and pray for our teenagers, but he, does, he doesn't, uh, there, there's long-lasting, unrepented sexual sins. Like, if you remember, if, you, if you're, you know, if you know the New Testament well at all, 1 Corinthians, he's addressed incest in 1 Corinthians 5, them going to prostitute temples in, in 1 Corinthians 6, and there's all kinds of, like, impurity, sexuality, homosexuality, all these kinds of embracing the word uh, for sexual immorality is the word pornania. It's like a junk drawer word for all sexual sin outside of heterosexual marriages. This is all illicit sexuality, activity. The word sensuality describes sexual conduct that lacks any moral restraint. It's, you know what? I'm just gonna engage in this show without any hesitation of what I'm going to embrace in my sexual messaging. And you know, what's interesting is the scripture says there shouldn't be a hint 
a hint. Now, let me say this before the wave of guilt comes in, and I'm going to crash that with the blood of Jesus, but none of us wakes up, right? Any of us, none of us wakes up in our minds and goes, hey, you know what, babe, what are you guys doing today? You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to start my day off with some slander. I'm going to hit anger pretty hard. And after I go to the coffee shop, probably some extra gossip, maybe some sexual sin. No, no one does. I mean, maybe, maybe. But if you love Jesus and you're walking with him and you're fighting, that's very different than what he's speaking into, by the way. But let me say this, every battle, every embrace and falling into those characteristics, those bad fruits, it comes with in. Jesus told his disciples from within the heart, the mouth, and then all those, everything, everything I just read, slander, gossip, sexual, it comes from the heart. So here's the thing, the demonic kingdom, your flesh, they have a few things in their uh, tool belt that they wanna use. Number one, they're gonna use your past. They're gonna use your current difficulties. They're gonna uh, use hurt, pain, failure. And the biggest one they'll use is, is future fears. And with all of those stirring around you, their ultimate goal is Romans chapter one, to make you doubt. Their ultimate goal is that you would exchange the truth of God for a lie. See, the essence of sin begins when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. When you find that fruit, so here's, I'm pastoring you now, if we're just sitting together, if you find some of that, man, like, man I don't know why I, slay, I hate it, I don't know, whatever's coming out in that bad fruit, that list, when you find that fruit, because you don't wake up planning to do it, all of a sudden you need to ask, what lie am I believing right now? Just, just go right to Jesus, take hold of the cross, there's no condemnation. See, the enemy doesn't want you to see that you're deeply loved, that Jesus went to the cross for that sin. What he does is he'll often give you a thought or make you from the heart slander from a place of one of those areas, and then he'll beat you up for having that thought. But when you go right to the cross, because Jesus Christ is your advocate, First John says, you can say right now this is washing your blood and you can thank him for it and then you can do the hard work. You can go, okay, what's the lie I'm believing? You know, you, you might hear, you're, you're, you're believing the lie that you're not enough. You have fear of this person's opinion of you or their likes of you because this wound, you've heard this a lot. So do you wanna bring that to me? What do I think about that? What does my scripture say about your identity? In, in connection with emotional and sexual attachments or addictions or sins or hidden stuff or struggles maybe that your spouse doesn't know about yet, um, There's a greater wave of the blood of Jesus that smashes over the wave of guilt and shame. And you might say, well, hey, I'm, I'm fed up. Man, I'm fed up with trying. 
I repent and then it happens again and then I repent and then it happens again and then I repent, falling, failing. But let me just point out, did you hear what you just said? I keep repenting. That's grace. That's beautiful. You know, when we get into the marriage series, we're probably gonna have a sub-Bible study for those who are struggling with any kind of sexual sin and pornography. We'll tell you more about that later, but um, there's grace in a heart responding in continuous repentance. But I think if you begin to, with Jesus covered in the blood of Jesus, go, why? If that's a symptom, why do I keep going back? What's the lie? Holy Spirit, what lie am I believing when I turn to this? What's the lie I'm believing right now? What, what, what is Romans 1? I'm, I'm exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I'm worshiping the creator, not, I mean the creation, not the creator. Why? What has the gospel, the word of God say to me about who I am? What am I not believing about who I am? Is there a root? Is there something in my past? Is there a current challenge in front of me? Is there a pain? Is there a future fear? What am I doubting? And then move towards that. And then you can ask Jesus, what is the truth? Don't just listen to the lie. Ask you, what's the truth? Would you lead me in the truth? Jesus is not like about just get them not to sin. But that's... No. No. You know, Jesus' close friend said that he went to the cross so that we could be brought back into relational connection with God. There's a lot of religions like the Pharisees and the other that just get you to be good. Jesus actually made you good on the cross, but there's a purpose. The purpose is because you have a race. You have a relational life. You have a community. You have a kingdom. All of it is about him. He's about restoring relational wholeness. By the way, that's why we meditate on his word day and night. We need the truth. So if you're asking Jesus, what is the truth? And, and you, you're not regularly abiding in your word as truth. If we don't read the Bible because this is a part of like, oh, yeah, Christian duty. No, 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 no. We, 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 we're in relational life with him because there's a battle for Romans 1 for us. Let me close with this thought. I wanna ask us this right now. So you ladies can come on up here. Um, and Ben. Ladies and Ben. Uh, here's the question I wanna ask. I got the sense as I was praying for us this week that there are some of us who don't wanna repent. Now, let me, let, me, let me be really clear. We, we, we do want to repent, but there's a fear. If you have a fear around becoming like Jesus in your marriage, if you have a fear of becoming like Jesus in your particular role at work, because you feel like, you know, I'm going to get persecuted, I'm going to get walked over, uh, I'm not letting my heart get hurt again. They don't deserve it. I need to be guarded. That's fear. People don't deserve it. And so here's the thing. 
we, you wouldn't admit this until Jesus showed you this, but you feel safe and more in control when one of those characteristics of sin are there for you. You gotta renounce that partnership with that particular sin. But you're afraid to repent. And that's okay, just admit it. Admit that to him. Release that to him. He's so loving, he's so patient like Paul is. But we cannot make the mistake that sin doesn't matter. Sin absolutely matters. Repentance is the greatest word out of the Lord Jesus' mouth. Because being holy in the kingdom isn't about just being good. We've already said that. It's about being in relationship with him and one another in a way where we're bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, in your marriage as it is in heaven, in your work as it is in heaven, in your wherever you go and with whoever you are as it is in heaven. It's about running the race with Jesus. You know what's so beautiful is, is Repenting of sin is about being set apart for him. It goes beyond just not sinning. You let that guilt wave get crashed by the blood of Jesus, but then you gotta pull in Hebrews 12, which says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run so why do we lay aside every weight and sin? Because there's a, there's a lane in front of us. There's a run in front of us. There's disciples in front of us, children in front of us, people in front of us that is set before us. And how do we run? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who ran his race. How did he run his race? With joy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we choose to partner with unrighteousness and to not get help with the weights and the sins, we're, we're missing the purpose. The purpose of Paul's heart for this church is there's a race. It's not just about you know, I want to feel happy. It's about leading with Jesus. It's about being a church that cultivates being an unburdening presence. It's about being a church that points to Jesus. It's, a, it's about a church that cares more about being family and connecting to people and always being ready to be humbled, no matter how it comes. So Father, I just pray now that as we listen to you, as we sing, as we pause, as we, we carry some of this stuff where you are pressing in and pulling out and loving us. And we just, as we sing and as we take communion and as we respond, I, I pray against any enemy that would just say, you know what, you're fine, don't deal with that right now, you don't have enough time, it's too crazy. And, and would, would you just come and enter those places of, of where there was unrest and, and expose the lie we're believing and give us the truth of your word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that you speak over us. I pray, God, if there's any fear and repentance, you'd replace it with love. In Jesus' holy name, amen.